Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Called to confession text is from Luke 15, 18. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. One thing is certain, those who are in Christ, who have been washed in his blood, do not make a confession of sin as a culprit or criminal before God the judge. Jesus Christ has forever taken away all our sins in a legal sense. Therefore, we no longer stand where we can be condemned but are once for all justified and accepted. If not as guilty lawbreakers, then in what sense do we confess our sins? We confess as children. Our redemption through Christ is more than just a pardon. It is also an adoption. We have become sons and daughters of the living God. He is now our Father, and we live in intimate, familiar relationship with Him. But daily, we still sin. We disobey our Heavenly Father, and such offenses, if not taken to Him at once and confessed, can harm that relationship. Recall, dear saints, the pitiful condition in which we have all found ourselves when we have not sought forgiveness for our sins. We feel at distance from God. We doubt His love for us. We become bitter toward Him and fearful of Him. We become like the prodigal son, who, although was still a son, was very far from his father. David writes about the same experience when he delayed in confession. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Unconfessed sins harm our relationship with God. But that harm is one-sided. It is we who are harmed. But if, with a child's sorrow at offending so gracious and a loving parent, we go to him and tell him all, then we are blessed. Our Father is faithful and just. It is in confession that he reminds us we are forgiven and that his fatherly love and care remain with us. It is through consistent daily confession that we go through life not only as a saved individual, but as children enjoying the present peace with their Heavenly Father. In his arms is a place for humble confession, not in the dreadful courtroom. Jesus Christ already went to the courtroom in our place, And therefore we have been justified once for all. But our feet still need to be washed from the defilement of our daily walk in this life as children of God. Brothers and sisters, please kneel with me if you're willing and able as we confess our sins. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather again, to hear your word, to open it, to hear you speak. I pray that that is the case today, that you will put aside 
the presenters' personal preferences and opinions, but yet your spirit will clearly proclaim your truth. We've already been reminded how much we desire to love you. This is true. Help us to be reminded again of how much you have loved us. Thank you. Our hearts are grateful. They want to receive your truth today. In Christ's name, amen. There's a children's story book called Edward the Emu. Some of you may have it in your bookshelves. And it's a story about an emu in the zoo who was unhappy to be an emu. And so as he listened to the visitors who came through the zoo talk about the other animals, Edward thought his life would be better if he could just be a different animal. And so he decided to give it a try. First, he went and swam with the seals. He spent the day with them, barking like a seal, eating fish and swimming around, and enjoyed his day. But near the end of the day, he heard someone, a visitor, remark, Oh, the lions, they are the great animal in the zoo. And so Edward said, Well, if that's the great animal, I should become a lion. So the next day, he hopped over to the lion's den and roared along with the best of them. And as he was resting in the sunshine with the lion pride, he heard someone, a visitor, remark, Ah, oh, the lions are great, but the snakes are where it's at. They're the ones I love to see. So Edward says, a snake I should be. And the next day, as he was slithering and hissing along with the snakes, he heard another visitor exclaim that of all the animals in the zoo, the emu was the most delightful to watch. So he goes, well, I'm an emu. And he decides to go back to his habitat and be the emu. Upon his arrival, though, he discovered another emu had been brought in to replace him because he had disappeared. He was apprehensive at first, checked out the other emu, and much to his pleasant surprise, he discovered that the name of the other emu was Edwina. And they live happily ever after as emus. And Edward learned an important lesson to be content with your situation, to be content with who you are. That's the best thing to be. Oftentimes, we as Christians act like Edward, we become discontent. We begin to think how life could be better. We begin to question whether or not our circumstances are where we should be. And we, become, we begin to explore other options. But just because I change my view on something does not necessarily change the reality of that situation. 
Just because I want to be a seal doesn't make me a seal. Because I want to be a lion or a snake did not make Edward a lion or a snake. He was still an emu. He was trying to live a life that was contrary to what he had been designed to live. Likewise, not understanding the nature of something will not reduce the effects of that nature or of trying to forego that nature. For example, as parents, we've seen this happen. It probably happened to us as children. A child not understanding that heat burns does not stop them from being burned when they hit the stove, the hot stove, right? We tell them how many times, don't touch that, don't touch that, don't touch that. Oh, man. They got, it's happened, hasn't it? (laughs) They get burned. Don't stand in front of that door, don't stand in front of that door. Bam! They get whacked in the head. Right? There's consequences whether we believe it's going to happen or not, whether or not, no matter what our view of a nature is. And it's trendy today, but it's not new. It's trendy to try to change the view on how we should live or what is the expectation for a Christian in their daily walk. What is acceptable or unacceptable? What fits into that gray area, right? That's the word we like to use to talk about things that we really can't be certain about, the gray area. And often it takes up the the false dichotomy of, of piety versus liberty, conformity versus individualism, tradition versus being relevant, a principle versus a preference, a creed versus private interpretation, law versus grace. You might hear it in those different conversations. So today we want to take a look at a passage from... In 1 John, that hopefully gives us some clarity on how we can understand our nature as Christians, the expectations that are there, and and the principles to guide us as we make decisions and choices along the way. So in 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6 will be our text today it says now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word truly the love of God is perfected in him by this we know that we are in him he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, here John gives us a test for true belief, as he points out in, in later in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Do not believe every spirit, but test them. Test to make sure they align with what is true, what God actually is saying. And so we want to use this passage to check. Our understanding. And whenever you come to a passage like this and you have to present it, I've sat there and you're like, well, the guy up there talking, he really doesn't match this. Or who does he think he is to tell me this information? Maybe he should take the plank out of his own eye before checking the speck in my eye. You know, we, we, we go through this whole uh, 
this whole uh, objections on whether or not we should listen to this based on the, the speaker. And I will admit, and this is all, that's all true about me, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not qualified to be, to be making this proclamation. So I think it's important for us to understand, first of all, who's saying this? It's not me. Right? Who is the author of this? And ultimately it's God. But who's the human author of this? And that is John the Apostle. He was, an, he's known as the evangelist. He's known as the presbyter, John the Great. He's known as John of Patmos. He lived a full life and has a great understanding and a wealth of knowledge from which to speak. In fact, he was one of the first disciples called by Christ. He and his brother James were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. And God and Christ called them early on to be his disciples. So he was with Christ throughout most of his ministry. He became known as the beloved apostle, the one whom Jesus loved. He was part of that inner core of disciples. There were 12. Even outside that, there were hundreds, right? So when you really study the life of Christ, there were, there were these large groups and audiences that he spoke to. And then out of that, there were actually hundreds that kept, you know, that followed him on Facebook and checked his Pinterest page and all those kind of things. You know, followed him closely and, and, and retweeted his quotes and things like that. There was hundreds that did that. And then there were the 12 who were with him intimately. And out of that 12, there were three that he really spent extra time with. Took them off for special instruction. Uh, and John was part of that group. Peter, James, and John were part of that triumvirate, part of that threesome. Uh, they were the three that were with Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. Can you imagine? Standing there at the Mount of Transfiguration, I would probably be dumbfounded like Peter too and say, you know, let's build some tents. What else are we going to do? Right? John was there. He was part of that inner court. He, at the Last Supper... He had leaned on the bosom, on the chest of Christ, and asked the question, Lord, who's going to betray you? He was intimate with Christ. He was at the foot of the cross, at the crucifixion. And one of the very last words that Christ said, Behold your mother, he says to John. He speaks to him in those very last words. Moments, And he becomes one of the very first to learn of the resurrection. As Mary comes and tells the disciples, John is the one that runs ahead and he gets to the tomb first. He's a little scared to go in, so Peter does that. Peter's the bold one, right? I think that's why John hung out with Peter. John had lots of ideas, but Peter could make it happen. He was there. He saw the empty tomb. Oh, what, what great faith. That must have given him. And as they were still wondering what actually took place, they went fishing. And as they were fishing, it was, a, it was like I normally happen when I happen, what happens when I go fishing, catch no fish. Spent all day there, you catch no fish. And this guy shows up on the shore and says, hey out there, if you want to catch a fish, just throw the net on the other side of your boat. Oh my goodness. What did that do to the disciples? Hey, we remember this, this happened before. And they threw it over, and the catch was so great. Peter was, was sure to count them. <laughs> How many fish did they catch that day? 153. Who cares? But that was noted by John the Apostle 
in his book that 153 fish were caught in one of those last miracles by Christ. And in that moment, he was told by Christ that he would not be martyred, but that he would live a full life. John the Apostle, a prolific author, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three epistles. He wrote the Revelation. He was exiled on Patmos where he lived out most of the end of his life. He recorded stories about the life of Christ. He even recorded our favorite verse, John 3.16. Everybody can quote that. And at the end of his book, he says, I've told as many stories as I can, and if I wrote more, I doubt the whole world could contain the, 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 the books that record what Christ did. That's a big library. And he's the one that had the vision of heaven that's recorded in Revelation that gives us hope for the future. So I would, pres- I would challenge each of us, if we are going to believe John's stories about Christ and his promise of salvation as recorded in the gospel, and we're going to have hope in his vision of the future recorded in Revelation, then we must also accept his instruction for how to live in the present. And that's what John is presenting to us today. How do we know we are living as Christians? What is the test of true faith? And as I know as my outline notes, I want to use the duck test to evaluate that. We know the duck test, right? If it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it's a duck. That's what John leads, it, leads us through. In the passage here we see, does it look like a duck? What are we saying? What is our life? What is being presented as a whole package for us? That's our look. Secondly, does it quack like a duck? Does it match up with what we're saying? Does the life, does our, does our conversation, do the things that we're thinking, the decisions we're making, does it match up with what we're saying is happening? And does it walk like a duck? Is there evidence? Can we be found guilty in front of a court of law or a court of our peers of being a Christian based on the evidence? So let's take a look at these things to see if we are Christians. Verse 3, he says, Now by this we know we know him, if we keep his commandments. Later on in verse 7, he says, This is not a new commandment. It is an old commandment that I'm just reminding us about. And I'm sure he's thinking, Hey, when I was hanging with Christ, and he was teaching us, this is one of the key lessons that he made sure we understood, right? If you go back to John chapter 14, verse 15, Christ clearly said, If you love me, keep my commandments. It's in red letters. It must be true. Christ himself said this, and John is simply passing on the clear instruction of Jesus Christ. And not only was it taught by Christ, but John actually took it to heart and lived it out. 
A great example of that is Acts chapter 5. If you're familiar with that passage, that's where Peter and the apostles, assuming John is included in that, are told that they should stop preaching about Jesus. They're put in prison. They escape from prison. Oh, no, they're, law, they're lawbreakers. They escape from prison. They go to the temple. They're preaching about Christ. The religious leaders say, hey, where are the disciples? Where are these guys? And they say, well, they're preaching about Christ. They brought him in and said, you know, we told you not to preach about Christ. And what did Peter and John and the apostles say? We should obey God rather than man. That's a hard thing to say when you're standing in front of the guy who can kill you. The guy who can put you back in prison. We should obey God rather than man. And that's true. They were imprisoned. They were forbidden to speak the name of Christ. They were beaten for doing that. And yet it's also recorded in Acts 5. That they would rather obey God than man. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So they continued to obey God and preach the gospel about Jesus Christ. Now I will say they probably had an unfair advantage over us. Because if you actually start at the beginning of chapter 5. What's the event that happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 5? Let me know. Ananias and Sapphira. I think that would wake me up a little bit from life after that. Like, man, I disobeyed God, you're dead. We don't tend to experience that type of scenario very often in our lives. I suppose every morning if we woke up, we learned about someone who died because they disobeyed God, it might change our perspective on whether or not we obey or disobey God. But John's life goes beyond that. It's not just that incident. It was a part of his life that he would obey God. And even in that account in Acts 5... The unbelieving community understood this, right? What was Gamaliel's advice as he was talking about what was going on with the apostles? Hey, guys, if this is not from God, just let it go, don't, and it'll disappear. But if it is from God, what will happen? We will never be able to overthrow it. Do Do we understand that like Gamaliel understood that? If it's not from God, it's going to fall away. If it is from God, it will never fail. Do we have that kind of confidence that Gamaliel had about who God is and how to live? And we understand at the end of that passage, in verse 32, uh, uh, they write that we are... His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit from whom God has given to those who obey Him. See, the apostles understood. John understood that it was it was an internal outworking. If you're going to look like a duck, you're going to look like a duck. There's going to be this understanding. There's going to be this consistent walk. There's going to be this belief that shows itself. In the way that we live, the things that we do. And he had started chapter 2. Here, the first part of this, in verses 1 and 2, he said, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's predicated, it's founded in the very truth that Christ is the propitiation. He is the substitution. He has been accepted by God for our sin. Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrected, has been accepted by God on our behalf for our sin. That's a truth that is foundational to understanding how we must live as Christians. It's one of those things that's certain. It's kind of like the balance equation, like, like, like Newton's laws of motion, right? We, we know those, right? Objects in motion or at rest tend to stay in motion or at rest until acted upon by another force, right? To every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The larger the object, the more force it will take to move it. Right? I did them as one, three, and two for those of engineers and people that are keeping track of things. I know I did them out of order. I apologize for that. Try as you may, the, the little object is not going to move the big object very far. It needs a certain amount of mass to make that happen and energy. Try as we may, I cannot change the, the reaction to a particular action. It's going to happen. Take a packet of green Kool-Aid and put it in water. It's going to turn green. I don't care if you want orange, purple, red Kool-Aid. You're going to get green Kool-Aid. It's certain. Two plus two will always equal four, no matter if you try a different method of math. Two plus two, it's order. It's reality. It's certain. The morals are going to have a baby. It's certain. Right? <laughs> I, sorry, I couldn't resist that. We are so blessed. Thank you for blessing us with, with the joy of children. It is, it is a blessing. So there are certain things, and one of them is, if we say we love him, we're going to obey, we're going to keep his commandments. Calvin, in his commentary on the passage, says, the knowledge of God derived from the gospel is not ineffectual. Rather, obedience proceeds from it. If God's efficacious Faith and salvation has worked in a person, obedience will follow. It's the equation of salvation. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. It will happen. In other words, if we are saved, if we have been regenerated, if we, are, if we believe, if we are a Christian, we will obey joyfully today it can't not happen now it may take a lifetime to get saved 
It may take a lifetime for us to get to that realization, but upon salvation, when there is saving faith, as James argues, there will be works of righteousness and obedience because faith without works is dead. So we can claim all day that we know God and we can claim that we're a Christian and we can claim that we've made a decision and we can claim what we want. But if we're not obeying God, it's not true. And that's what John goes on to say. Right after that first test, does our life substantiate that you claim to know God? Is a duck is going to look like a duck. He then goes on and says, you have to understand it is like this. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoa, that escalated quickly. We were talking about, you know, knowing God and obeying him. Like, now you're calling me a liar? That's a little insensitive. That's a little unloving. Seems harsh. In today's vernacular, that's not politically correct. But John, once again, is simply sharing the knowledge that Christ had instilled in him. If you remember Christ's interaction back in John, um, John 8, he's having this discussion with the religious leaders, and they're saying, well, you can't be the Son of God. You must, you know, we don't believe it, so it can't be true, and you must, be, you must have a demon in you, right? You must, you must be some guy. You're a Samaritan. That's what you are. You're a Samaritan who's coming and pretending. And what does Christ, what does Christ say to them? You are of the Father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Whoa. That's kind of harsh there, Jesus. You might want to get a relationship going here first. And kind of understand where they are. And then kind of work your way, you know, be kind to them. Well, Jesus, John, sees this. And he says, well, if Jesus is going to say that, we better be consistent to that. You're, you're saying you're a Christian, but you find it hard to obey God? Well, let me just let me help you understand what Jesus thinks of that. You are a liar. And you are not following Jesus. You are following the father of lies, Satan himself. That is uncomfortable to hear. But it identifies the true source of that thinking. It's not just some mistake. It's not just some time needed to figure it out. It's a bold-faced lie. And this truth has existed from the beginning of time. And it was, it's been taught throughout all of Scripture. It's important to understand that that's a lie because that thinking, that understanding is a matter of life and death. We try to, we try to soften it. We have our, our black lies and our white lies and it's mistakes and misunderstandings. 
But when it comes to, to living as a Christian and obeying God, it is a matter of life and death. Obedience equals life. Disobedience equals death. It's another equation. Knowing him produces obedience. Obedience produces life. If that's not true in our lives, we don't have the right equation. We have a false equation that's trying to be worked out that will never become balanced. It, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan rather than God. Don't you wish? Do you ever have this thought, man, if I could just go back and be there, you know, like when it happens, you know, Eve, do you really know what you're doing? Think, think about this for a minute. God said this, this beautiful guy over here said this. You're going with him? Don't forget the time you've spent with God. Don't forget what he's done for you. Don't forget he's your creator. Maybe his word is a little more... If there's, if there's a d d discrepancy, I would maybe default with this guy over here. I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be what we tell Adam and Eve? You, you know, from my experience, I don't think this is a good decision. I'm living it out every day. It's bad. Well, we've got to be willing to do that with ourselves. God says this. My experience, everything else says this. Not sure which way to go. Well, let's tell ourselves what we would tell Adam and Eve. Choose God. Obey God. Right? We see that, we see that with the, the plagues and the exodus. Put blood over your, your door. You'll be, you'll be saved. Don't. You'll die. Those who obeyed, lived. Those who disobeyed, didn't. Crossing the Red Sea. Those who were the obedient people of God and walked across were saved. Those who were chasing to kill them because they hated God, killed. Ooh, woke you up. There we go. It works, time. And again, an equation that never, never fails. The Israelites, as they're preparing to enter the promised land, God's had half of them on Ebal, half of them on Gerizim. What's the lesson? We're going to pronounce the blessings over here. If you obey me, here's all the good things that will happen. If you disobey me, here's the death and all the bad things. Clearly stated. His lights didn't get it. So what happens? They end up going into captivity. It took a while. Because God's gracious. God's merciful. He's patient. He has all the time in the world. In fact, he has all the time in eternity. To work these things out. The crucifixion of Christ was the ultimate lesson in that. Why did Christ die? Because the people of God disobeyed. Disobedience brings about death. And I already mentioned Ananias and Sapphira, a quick object lesson. In case you're thinking I've changed my way now here in the New Testament, bam, they're dead. I'm still God. I still require obedience, and I still hate disobedience. And obedience will bring life, and disobedience will bring death. And Paul, Peter, and John, we don't have time to go into all the details, but, but in Romans 1, clearly they, everybody knows God. 
when they choose to disobey him, then what happens? God gives them over to their vile, vile thoughts and vile lifestyles. Paul writes to Titus as the young pastors seeking to get things in over. He said, watch out for those false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny them with their actions. And John here later in his letter says, those who know God will not keep on sinning. It's a fact. If a duck is a duck, a duck will sound like a duck. And if it's not, it's just a quirk. They want to be a Christian. They like, they like all the benefits that are, are presented, but they're not willing to go through the effort. They're not willing to take on the cost. But St. Augustine reminds us that the cost of disobedience, or sorry, the cost of obedience is small in comparison to the cost of disobedience. The cost of obedience is small compared to the cost of disobedience. Disobedience shows a disregard, a hate for God. It shows our alliance with the father of lies. We are only giving lip service to what God says. This is not just about being mistaken. It's not just about needing more time. It's, no, it's not just about I got a lot of baggage or you just don't understand my situation. Those may be some helpful explanations about what's going on in my life, but they cannot be excuses for disobedience. They cannot be excuses for not obeying God. What do we often use? Our nationality, right? I'm Irish, so I get mad. That's just the way I am, right? I'm Dutch. I'm stubborn. You can't expect me to make quick decisions. Uh, you know, it's my, it's my personality. I'm an introvert, so you can't expect me to talk to G- people about Jesus. I'm an extrovert, so I'm just undisciplined. That's just the, I'm spontaneous. No self-control here. I just got to live out who I am, right? It's based on my feelings, on my circumstances, So we excuse love, or we excuse hate instead of loving. We excuse, uh, we we don't think there can be any self-control or self-discipline. We we don't show charity. We we are not charitable. We don't serve others. We don't show, we're, we're not caring. We fail to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. Rather, we choose to let our life do it. A life that's living inconsistent to what God is teaching. Do you see the disparity in being a quirk? It won't work. That was good. Write that down. Rather, God's love for us and our love for God is demonstrated through obedience. It's not just lip service. It's a matter of the heart. And that's what Christ was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Moses brought out, even in the law. It wasn't about some external practice. It was about an internal reality, an internal change. The true quack, the real quack, says this. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. John reminds us. John reminds us that obedience is the result of God's love. 
Because God has loved us, we will obey. And he reminds us later in the end of his letter that it's not burdensome. Oftentimes we think, oh, life is going to be so difficult now. It's going to be so hard. Calvin in his commentary says, the law, which is spiritual, does not command only external works, but enjoins this especially to love God with the whole heart. If I'm loving God with my whole heart, I'm putting God above everything else. Every decision I make is going to be predicated on, does this fit with my love to God? Does this demonstrate that I love God? Does this, does this show that I know God? And that's what Moses taught, even back as he was preparing the Israelites to head into the land of Canaan. Now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? You may want to take notice of this, because this is a requirement from God. Israel, listen up. This is what God requires. Fear and love him and walk in his precepts. He restates it later in Deuteronomy 30. Choose life even to love the Lord thy God, to serve him and to cleave to him. That is the standard by which we judge our duck. St. Augustine again says, For where the penalty annexed to disobedience is great, and the thing commanded by the Creator is easy, who can sufficiently estimate how great a wickedness it is in a matter so easy not to obey the authority of so great a power, even when that power deters with so terribly a penalty? You understand what Augustine's saying? God's work in us has given us the easy button. Right? We, we battle with this, right? I got my easy and my hard button. Um, boy, should I get up tomorrow and be diligent or sleep in and be slothful? Well, it'd be easier to be slothful. Bing, easy button. Right? Should I study for this or prepare for this? Or should I go out and enjoy the nice sunny afternoon? Well, it'd be more fun to enjoy the sunny afternoon. Bing, easy button. Right? So often in our lives, we evaluate easy and hard based on our experience or what the obstacles, the, 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 the road of least resistance. But we have to rethink the easy and hard in light of God's love. The easy button is that what agrees with God. The hard button is that which disagrees with God. Thinking back to our equations, right? As much as we want to figure it out, I can't make something happen that's not going to happen. And so we, come, we have to come to it and say, um, well, you know, I, I, could, I could adjust my taxes a little bit here because, you know, I'm, I really need some extra money. But God says, don't cheat. Bing, easy button. Well, hell, it's easy. Bam. I shouldn't do that because that's, God says not to do that. Um, you know, I, my neighbor really needs some help. Oh, I'm busy. I, I have no money. I have no time. But God says, care for one another. Bam, easy button. See, the, the easy button, as John says, the easy button, as Augustine says, 
is not the path of least resistance, but the life that represents the truth that God declares. That's the easy button. I mean, go through all those scenarios we talked about before. Adam and Eve thought they were hitting the easy button. Oh, man. I think life was a lot harder with their easy choice. Right? As, the, as the Israelites enter into the land of Canaan, walk around the city seven times and the walls will come down. Well, from my experience, it would be better to put together some strategies and sharpen our weapons and learn how to become proficient at warfare and attack uh, in multiple ways. But God said, march around. Okay, boom, easy button. Aiken, right after that. Well, you know, from my experience, God wants us to enjoy the fruits of our labor. So I'm going to take some, some goods from Ai. But God said, don't take anything. Bam, hard button. He just lost his life and his family's life over that. And turmoil for the Israelites. It seemed like an easy decision. It seemed like an easy button. Bam, hard, hard button. Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, man, look at all these people getting credit and giving. We want to be people that give and get credit, but we need to keep a little bit for ourselves. Pride. God says, no pride. Bam, hard button, dead. It wasn't an easy button. We have to rethink the hard and easy buttons in life. It's not about what we expect to come, but it's the truth of what has already happened. God loves us. He has redeemed us, and that will produce obedience. Moses could not speak. God changed him. Peter was rambunctious. God changed him. Paul was a murderer. God changed his nature. John could have been a little timid. God changed him and used him. Do not fall into the hard button trap of saying, well, that's just who I am. That's the way I am. Understand that when God tells us to do something, he has loved us enough that we should do it. He will enable us by his spirit to do us. And this fact is true about what it's going to be like in heaven. In Revelation, the very last chapter, it talks about Jesus being there. And he's going to give reward to those who obey. And those who disobey are on the outside of the city. Are on the outside of the heaven. Blessed are those who walk or who do his commandments. They have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. That's the end of the equation. That's, that's how life is lived. We must understand what we're getting in for. We must understand the duck that we're grabbing a hold of. Our conversation, our thoughts, our decisions must line up so that we quack like a duck. And then we need to understand that our daily life will show that as well. We should walk, what's he say in verse 6? He who abides in Christ ought himself also to walk just as Christ walked. Our walk needs to align with what Christ would do. 
Now, this is not just a matter of imitating, imitating what would Jesus do, right? That's strapping on the externals. That's putting the externals onto our daily life and our daily preferences. Rather, rather it is what Jesus said and what he modeled. It is Christ living through us. It is Christ living in us. It is us abiding in Christ, in Christ by his spirit living in us. It's the old man versus the new man. It's the flesh versus the spirit. And, and, and Christ modeled this. Right? If anybody could argue this, the easy button and that man, this isn't right. It is Jesus, right? He is the king of the universe, the creator of all things. He should have never, he should have never had to come as a form of his creation and die by the hands of, of his creation. That, that is just so unfair. I mean, if you want to argue injustice and unfairness, we should argue that all day long. It was unfair and unjust that Jesus Christ had to come and live among his creation and die. That is, that is wrong. That is, that is unfair. That is unjust. But he did not do it because he saw the hard path in front of us. He did it because he loved God the Father and he loved us. The love that was in him, in him propelled him to do that. To push the easy button of taking on the form of creator and dying. Because the hard button is that everyone is damned and has no eternal life. So, we need to kind of explore a little bit what it means. You know, the culture is dealing with some of the big no-nos, right? Murder, immorality, homosexuality, theft, right? Well, of course those are wrong. We would never do any of those, right? But when you read through Paul's list time and again, what about things like complaining and grumbling, being jealous, being disunified, what about being, having disobedient children? How about being lazy and, and, and allowing mediocrity? How about the way we talk about one another? Backbiting, envious. Uh, how about being undiscerning? Oh my goodness. Did we just go through a year or two of great undiscernment in a culture? And how many Christians are part of that discussion that just don't get it? Don't, can't not have a conversation or an understanding about what's going on in the world? Untrust, how about the idea of being untrustworthy or, or unloving? Have you ever heard any, a Christian say, well, I just can't forgive that person. Do you know what they did? Really? Do we, do we know what we did against Christ? You're telling me you can't forgive someone even though you claim to be forgiven? Do we not show mercy? Matthew Henry says that observing Christ's commands has holiness and excellency, which, if universal, would make the earth resemble heaven itself. What if every Christian who, came, who claimed to be a Christian obeyed God diligently? Would it change the way we live? 
Would it change the culture, the aroma of earth? It would. Because heaven's going to be different because everybody there is going to be obeying God all the time. So as we have been greatly loved, as we have experienced the grace and mercy of God, we must ask that final question, do I love to obey God joyfully with gratitude? Because it's not, just, it's not just obedience. It's not begrudging obedience. It's not mandatory obedience. It's because I've been loved. I will love. A duck walks like a duck. So, in conclusion, if it looks, sounds, and walks like a duck, it must be a duck. Sadly, though, or the caution is, that's true in both cases. The duck test applies to all situations. It'll affirm our belief. It will also affirm our disbelief. So here, the three things that John reminds us. Keep God's commandments. They are not optional. They're not how we feel, not based on how we feel, but they are organic. They grow out of God's work of love in us. Secondly, we need to love to obey God's word. It's not just lip service. It's not drudgery. It's not obligatory. It is joyful. It is with an attitude of gratitude that we obey God. And thirdly, we need to walk like Christ. Not just imitating what he did, but actually submitting to Christ living in me. Again, St. Augustine says, A Christian is a mind through which Christ thinks, a heart through which Christ loves, a voice through which Christ speaks, and a hand through which Christ helps. If these truths characterize your life today, be encouraged. Enjoy Christ's peace. Keep the faith. Be about the business of encouraging others to continue to love God with your whole heart. Proclaim Christ until he comes again. Worship him for eternity starting today. If and I don't want to be too hard on yourself, but be realistic. If these are not characteristics of your life, be warned. You need to believe it's true, whether you believe it or not. You need to humble yourself before God. You need to confess your sins, seek his mercy. You need to receive his grace, experience his forgiveness, and live out his love in obedience to his word. As Augustine wrapped up his confessions, he says this, Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You have called to me and have called out and have shattered my deafness. You have blazed forth with light and have put my blindness to flight. You have set forth fragrance and I have drawn in my breath. I pant after you. I have tasted you, and I hunger and thirst after you. You have touched me, and I have burned for your peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us as demonstrated through your Son, Jesus Christ. You have given so much. You have provided so much by your Spirit. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, courage, strength. You have taught us that apart from you, we cannot love you. Apart from your work, we cannot obey you. Yet because of your love, because of your work, we will joyfully obey you. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us lovable and loving. And close as the Lord has taught us. exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt when Moses and Aaron sent out the 12 spies into Canaan, the land that God had promised to them. Ten of the spies came back with a very grim report, while the two, Joshua and Caleb, saw it much differently. And then throughout the Old Testament, the promised land of Israel is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's an image of rich abundance, and particularly an abundance of food. God did not choose a land where Israel would serve or would survive just in, uh, in famine and thirst, but a land that would satisfy them, fat, satisfy them with fullness and fatness. In the land that God had given, Yahweh gave food and drink to his people with an open hand. In Christ, we have been brought into an even better land. Christ himself is our promised land. The one in whom we live and move, he is the ground that provides us with abundant food. Each week we are reminded that Christ is our land flowing with milk and honey. He's a bread of bread, he's a land of bread and wine which gives himself as food and drink. But unbelief can make this land appear barren and unfruitful, threatening and dangerous. So we must come to this table in faith, believing that the promised land has already been given. Come to this bread with faith, trusting in Christ to feed you, and receive the wine with thanksgiving, believing that Jesus is the source of all life and health, because he is. You're invited to this table. I urge you and I call you to come. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.